So yeah, I was I was actually here like two hours Wednesday, and then I had turkey. So like I left and I just could have took a nap in the car. And <clears throat> but <clears throat> I didn't think that's true. <laughs> I had a smaller portion of turkey than. <clears throat> All right, ladies, I'm about to engage you in a romantic story. Everybody ready? Oh, yeah. So, they sat down together to a candlelight dinner at a beautiful overlook on a flowing river. He looked into her eyes and he said, I love you. She said, how much do you love me? He was kind of caught off guard. He's like, I love you to the moon and back. She's like, how much do you love me? He's like, I love you more than I love myself. Because to be romantic, you got to talk in a real good accent, right? She said, how much do you love me? He said, I love you more than you know. And she said, how much do you love me? And then he said it. He said, I would die for you. And she melted. And they got married and lived happily ever after. Right? Because when somebody says, I would die for you, they mean business, right? Anybody see the movie Inside Out? Huh? So I won't give much away, but they're inside of her mind. And she's got this imagination place where she imagines the perfect boy, perfect man for her. And what is he saying when you meet him? I would die for Riley. That's all he says. I would die for Riley. I would die for Riley. So she has this picture of this perfect boy, this perfect man, and what is her ideal of love? I would die for you. Now, young ladies, don't buy it. Let me just tell you right now, young guys, don't say it, okay? Just don't even go there. I would die for you. It's a big claim, isn't it? Now, let me say this, mothers, would you die for your kids? Yeah, you betcha. You know that you would. Fathers would too. Fathers, husbands, would you die for your wives? You better. You, I, you, I would die for you. You need to perfect that accent too. So if we have a baby boom in nine months, I'll know what it was. It was, I would die for you. <laughs> what does that even mean? Can you love somebody enough to look them in the eye and say, I would die for you? What you're saying is, your life is more important than mine. You mean more to me than I mean to me. And I care more about your welfare than my welfare. It's a huge statement. I would die for you. Now, we've kind of tipped our hand already this morning about how that ties into what we're talking about. But I want you to think about somebody who loves you enough that they would die for you.
Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And what we're going to read this morning is actually Romans 5, 1-11. But we're going to focus on verses 5-8. to But if you would stand with us, I'm going to read these 11 verses, Romans 5, 1-11. And we stand out of reverence for the Word of God because we do believe that this Bible is God's written, inspired Word to us. And if there is a God and He cares enough for us that He would record His words for us, we should respect that. That's why we stand. It's just out of reverence. Simply out of reverence. So, let me read verses 1-11 through of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. God, these are magnificent words. These are, if it were not for the revelation and the truth of Your Holy Spirit, these words would be unbelievable. But God, because of the great love with which You have loved us, You have shown us what these words really mean. And this morning we ask for more help, more depth, more understanding, so that we can see just exactly who You are and just exactly what You've done through the work of Christ who died for us while we were still sinners. Give us understanding. Give us revelation through the power of Your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Or you can stand. I don't care what you do. It's up to you. be a little awkward if you stood the whole time, though. So, we are trekking through the book of Romans, and truthfully, at this point, we've run at a pretty good clip. Um, we've, we've taken some big passages... And we haven't really taken it very slow. I'm going to tell you right now where we are, we're going to pull the brake a little bit and we're going to ease through these passages that we're about to go into because there's so much in them. I wanted to cover 5 through 11 today and there's just too much. So we are on the third point of our outline, Romans. Point three, blessings, the results of being right with God. And I will quickly run through where we've been. We've been through chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20 that talked about what? Somebody tell me what that told us. 
We're all sinners, every single one of us. We're born into it. We stink like it the moment we're conceived. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. That's how far back it goes. It's in our blood. It's in our genes because of Adam and Eve and what they did. Sin was introduced into the human race and anybody that was born after that had sin except for Christ. But everybody that had a mother and a, a, a earthly mother and earthly father was introduced into sin when they were born. And as sinners, we have a need to be made right with God. So, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, 25 showed us the means for being right with God and that is justification by faith alone, apart from works. You cannot earn your salvation. It's by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was dead. We'll talk about that some today. He was buried. He was in the tomb. On the third day, He rose again. He walked the earth for 40 days, showed Himself to be alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and then He ascended into heaven where He sits right now enthroned as King of everything, waiting for the day when He will return to take us to be with Him. Or maybe when He comes down here to be with us. The dwelling place of God is now with man is what we saw. And the only way that we can know that is that we are, we've put our faith in Him. Justification by faith. That's the means for being right with God. Once we're right with God, man, there are some blessings involved in being right with God. And that's the point of the outline that we're in right now. Point three, blessings, the results of being right with God, started in chapter 5 verse 1, and it will culminate with a grand fireworks display in chapter 8. I keep not wanting to refer to chapter 8, but today we're going to refer to chapter 8 just so you know. I can't help it. It's just, it's like, if oh, i got to get this, there's this. <clears throat> so chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, these four chapters lay out in grand style what the blessings are that result from being right with God. Quickly, we talked about this and <clears throat> it's fun because we're talking about this at home, we're talking about this with our kids, we're talking about this on the way, when we sit down, when we rise up, Asian station, this is the process that God used to make us right with Him. Expiation is God taking the guilt of our sin away from us. And what He did with that guilt, He placed it on Christ and then He poured out His wrath on our sin. That's propitiation. Expiation, God took our guilt away. Propitiation, He poured out His wrath on Christ in our place. Then imputation, He took Christ's righteousness and He gave it to us. He gave Christ's righteousness to us. That's imputation. That led us to the state of being justified, justification. And one day it will all culminate. Salvation is a past, present, and future experience. I was saved. I am saved. I will be saved. So that's Asian station, expiation, guilt away, propitiation, wrath of God poured out on Christ, imputation, the righteousness of Christ given to us, justification, we are right with God, and one day it will lead to our complete and total salvation. I've got to scroll through these again because I put my slides out of place. So, that brings us to today. What we're going to focus on is Romans chapter 5, the end of verse 5 through verse 8. So, if you want to put your finger there, there we go. So this is where we're starting today. We're actually starting in 6, but I, I, you've got to preface it with this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, and that's what have we focused on today so far, God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now listen, 
our hearts refers to believers. An unbeliever has not had this love poured into their hearts. That's important, okay? Because how did He pour that love out? He poured that love out through the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers do not possess the Holy Spirit. Now listen, before you get all high and mighty and say, well, I'm a believer, I've got the Holy Spirit, it's a gift to be right with God. The Holy Spirit as a person is God giving Himself to you. So the Holy Spirit is a gift that God has given to believers. Don't think that you've done anything to earn it or deserve it. Because you haven't. And you could not. You could not earn the Holy Spirit. God has given the Holy Spirit to believers as a gift who has been given to us. So God's love is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now what is this love like? How much does God love you? Do you know? Do you care? Do you care to know? Can you measure it? Does it matter? How can we know? And what if we really could know how much God loves us? Now let me give you a warning. The carbon monoxide fumes are gone. No excuse for sleeping this morning. Okay? I figured out that's why people were sleeping. It's carbon monoxide. Or maybe the fact that you talk for an hour, bald guy. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 6. Let's start here. Let me start back here. <clears throat> we talked a little bit last week about the fact that the Holy Spirit being given to us is amazing news. Because the love that's mentioned here is God's love, which makes it pretty good news, and also that it is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is very God of very God. So it's God showing His love and pouring it out in our hearts by giving Himself to us. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father, just as much God as God the Son. One God, three persons. We do believe in Trinitarian theology. If the Trinity is not true, the Bible is wrong and I'm going to hell. I'll say that as plain as I can say it. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit work together as one person, as one God and three persons to accomplish my salvation. So here what we see is God has given Himself to me through the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit lives in me. And I'm still terribly afraid that we are mortifyingly underwhelmed by that truth. And as a consequence, we miss both the magnitude and the preciousness of it. So here we sit with God taking up residence in us for the purpose of showing us how much He loves us. Now we live in a cohabitating society anymore. How much do you love me? I would die for you. Let's move in together. Uh, again, guys don't try it, girls don't buy it. Okay. The way that we really show our love for one another is that we share life together. That's what marriage is. Marriage is two people becoming one, sharing life. And here what God has done is He has shared His life with us. We, he has become one with us. Jesus would say in John 17, I with them and you with me, I and them and you and me and us and them. And it's a big crazy, you can't tell us apart. Because we have become one with God, God has become one with us. <coughs> 
to show us how much He loves us. Words cannot adequately express this, which is why I wanted to start here to make a point. I want you to hear me very clearly when I say this. The presence of the supernatural God makes this whole transaction supernatural. Andrew mentioned a few weeks ago on Wednesday night that we've lost the mystical part of our faith. And that word even makes it kind of so mystical. We kind of crinkle up in our backs and mystical. Now what are you talking about? What I'm not talking about is a mysticism that sits in a dark corner of your house somewhere waiting to hear the voice of God in your head somewhere. There is that mysticism and that's not what I'm talking about. But listen, we talk to a God we can't see. We expect Him to hear us. And we expect Him to speak to us through the Bible. We expect Him to act and do things that we can't do in and of ourselves. That's pretty mystical. Matter of fact, the world looks at us sometimes and says, you all are a bunch of kooks. You keep talking to that God that you can't see. And we say, okay, because one day our faith will become sight. So, listen, the supernatural God who spoke all things into existence lives inside of you. And if anything out of this passage is going to make sense to you, the only way it can make sense to you is by the Holy Spirit of God enlightening you and giving you revelation understanding. I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and I've heard Herb Hodges say it 25,000 times probably. Revelation is a top-shelf miracle of God. If you understand and comprehend anything out of this message, out of this book today, it's because God supernaturally revealed it to you. Don't lose the supernatural aspect of your faith because if you do, none of this is going to work. That's important. You can't do it. You can't figure it out. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. It takes God doing what only God can do. <clears throat> we can talk about the love of God. We can feel warm fuzzies thinking about it. We can even believe it in our hearts and miss the miracle of it. If God doesn't do something supernatural to reveal this and any truth to us, we are operating simply on the basis of what John Piper referred to in his messages on this passage, logic or syllogisms. Anybody know what a syllogism is? You, you probably do, you just may not have heard it called that before. A syllogism is when a conclusion is drawn from two premises. premises. Piper gave this example, God loves the world, I'm in the world, so God loves me. Okay? That's a syllogism. And if that's the way that you're operating in your Christian life, you're missing the supernatural power of God. I'm not saying that God bypasses truth. No, He uses truth. He uses the Word. He uses something concrete that we can refer to, but then He uses His Holy Spirit to enliven us to that truth, to it's kind of like Him winding us up. It's kind of like Him acting where we can, we can look and say, okay, yeah, God loves me. But when the Holy Spirit acts in that, we're like, God loves me. It's a whole different way of doing life than just figuring things out. God loves the world. I'm in the world, so God loves me. Doesn't work. These statements and their conclusions are true, but simple logic, simple, concise, truthful statements will not introduce you to the reality of the love of God. Only, only 
Only, only the Holy Spirit working in the minds and hearts of men can make this love of God a living, breathing reality in the Christian's life. The whole premise of the Christian life is that I can't do anything to save myself. I can't do anything to make God like me more. I can't do anything to improve my standing with God. He is the initiator. He is the life source. He is the miracle worker. And as we approach these next three verses, it is imperative that we are leaning on God the Holy Spirit to give us what Paul prayed for in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians 1. I don't have that up here and I'm sorry, I forgot to put it in. Because I want you to see this with your eyes and I pray that the Holy Spirit enlivens it to your heart and to your mind. Ephesians chapter 1, it's a, it's a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians and I, I mentioned it while we were singing. <clears throat> this is what he prayed for him. Chapter 1 of Ephesians verses 17 through 19. He says back in verse 16, Remembering you in my prayers, and what does he pray? Verse 17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That God would act like God in our lives and do what we cannot do so that we can know. So with His help, and only with His help, we might just have our lives changed by His presence and His power. So let's pray and labor that in. Now go back to Romans chapter 5 and we'll look at verse 6. <clears throat> and if you don't have a Bible, it is up here if you haven't figured that out by now. <clears throat> so, we just came out of the end of verse 5 talking about God's love being shed abroad in our hearts. Now, how do we know what kind of love that is? Paul sets out to show us here. For, F-O-R, which is a favorite word of Paul's, as you've probably seen from past passages. How many times have we seen the word for? For, 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 for. This, this happened, for this happened, for this. This is true, for this. Paul uses this word all the time. So for is the first word. So Paul is saying God loves us, and here he says for, as if to say God loves us because look, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now I'm going to tell you, and I mentioned this earlier, every single word of this verse is important. Now, every word of the Word of God is important. But for us to understand this adequately, we're going to look at every word individually. Now, we're not going to take a long time on each word. But we are going to look at each word, word by word, with a close look, so that we might get a full understanding to give the Holy Spirit plenty of fodder to work with up here. Okay? So, for, we've already said it, it's a conclusion word. It's saying, God has shown, shed His love abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For. Because, stop, look. And what's the next word? While. So this is a time word, right? It's important to understand this time word. While refers to the timing of this demonstration. When did God show His love? While we were still weak and at the right time. Who is we? We've talked about this some. 
We refers to those who have seen this love, those who have been redeemed by this love, and it refers to believers, it refers to Christians. And we'll see this a little bit more later. <clears throat> For while we were... Were implies something in the past that is not the same now. We were this, but now we're not. Still. Still works with were. Try to say that. Still works with were. The word still works with the word were to draw a contrast to what used to be while we were still this. It'd be like me saying back when I still had hair, right? Drawing a contrast to now when I don't have hair. So while we were still. And then we get to the word weak. While we were still weak. Now this word has a short definition, but it's important. The Greek word weak is asthenes, A-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. The Greek prefix a, which this word starts with, always denotes a negative. So if you see a at the beginning of a Greek word, it's a negative, it's a contrast. A contrast, contrast, I would die for you. Contrasted to living for you. Now I sound like Dracula. Okay. <clears throat> The Greek, which, by the way, <laughs> I would die for you quickly turns into I want to suck your blood, but we'll, we'll move on. So don't try it, don't buy it, okay? <laughs> Stick with that for the <laughs> That was revelation right there. Y'all are you're welcome. Oh boy. We'll have to edit that out. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So now, weak. We're talking about the word weak. The Greek prefix A denotes A negative. Here, the Greek word, the root word is S-T-H-E-N-O-O. Stheno-O. Stheno-O. Yeah, I don't know what it's... But the word stheno-O means to strengthen. So if we put an A at the beginning of that and turn it into asthenase, what are we doing if we're not strengthening something? Okay, we're without strength. That's, that's literally what it means. That's the literal meaning of the word weak. We are without strength. We don't have any strengthening. Now, the literal meanings worked out transliteralizationally. Try to translate that, Andrew. Transliteralizationally. Okay, sorry. As I say these things, I'm thinking these people are trying to... Yeah, never mind. Okay, so the literal meanings are weak, feeble infirm or impotent. Not impotent, impotent. And it means to have no strength. None. So whatever God did to show His love for us, He did it while we had no strength. When we were incapable of doing anything for Him or for our own good, we were impotent. We were weak. We were infirm. We could not help ourselves when God demonstrated His love for us. Now that's pretty big. For while we were still weak, now this next phrase, at the right time. Now we're not going to take that word for word, we're going to take it as a phrase. What do you think that means? At the right time. There was a certain point in time that God had 
worked out in His plan, in His sovereignty, that this would happen at the right time. And it literally means, drum roll, at the right time. Again, Revelation. You're welcome. When God did what He did to show His love, He did it at the right time. It wasn't too early. It wasn't too late. What God did was on a timetable. It was on a schedule. God had prepared for it, which can be seen by the meticulous way God had sent prophets who would tell the who, the what, the where, the why, the how, and the when of when it would happen. And He did all of that beforehand. He said, it's coming. He gave them dates. When you see this, look for this. When you see this, it'll be this many days until He rides into Jerusalem. I mean, He gave them specific dates. He gives us specific dates because we can read it too and we can line it up and say, yeah, that's when God said He would do this. All beforehand, God was working this grand display of love and it came just when He meant it to. So He was in complete control of it. And what was this display? How did God choose to show His love for us? Christ died for the ungodly. God said, I would die for you. And He meant it. And He planned for it. And He came and He did it. Christ died for the ungodly. The question we have to ask ourselves out of that phrase is, who did what for who? So let's make sure we see fully who did what for who. Let's get back to our word-for-word progression. The first word in this phrase is Christ. It's capitalized, so what's that mean? It's either a person, place, or thing. So Christ is either a person, a place, or a thing. You ever been to Christ? No, not a place. Christ is not a thing. It's not Jesus' last name, by the way, either. It's not a cuss word. Christ. It's a name. It's a title. So our first word is Christ. It's capitalized. It's a proper noun. And it means that this Christ is a person, but not just a person but a person. Who is Christ? Well, first of all, what do you know about Christ? Anything? The word Christ literally means anointed one. Now, what does that make you think of? Who would an anointed person be? King? Right. Think about David. Think about Saul in the Old Testament. They were anointed. It was a public ceremony where they would present somebody and they would literally pour out a horn full of oil and it would run all over. Remember back at the beginning of this providence thing when we merged? Psalm 133. It's like the precious oil running down the robe. Now Aaron was a priest, so he was appointed for a certain task. The kings were the same thing. They anointed them and the oil ran all over them to show people this is God's chosen vessel to do this chosen job. In David and Saul's case, it was kingship. In Aaron's case, it was priestship. So, an anointed person in this case had a very purposeful reason 
to be called out and to be set aside. So, David and Saul were kings. Here, Christ was God's anointed king. Okay? He was also God's appointed priest. An anointed person was also called to accomplish a particular goal. God had promised all through the Old Testament that He would send someone, with a capital S, who would deliver His people from their oppressors, from their sins, from themselves. The Jewish mind would hear the word Christ as Mashiach, which is translated in English, Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah more than they wanted their next breath. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and win their freedom for them, to restore the kingdom of Israel to her former glory. The Messiah was God's anointed one who was promised, who was coming, who would make all things right. And the Jews, in this time in particular, under Roman oppression, having been through Assyrian oppression, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman oppression, they wanted to be free again. And the Messiah was the one who would bring Israel back to what she was supposed to be. He would make all things right. And that really fits so well here, especially seeing, as we did earlier, that there was a grand plan in place to show God's love. So Christ, mentioned in this passage, is that Messiah. Christ is that Deliverer. He is the one who would make all things right and restore the kingdom of God to its perfect design. But how did He do it? Look at the next word. Now if you're looking for somebody to make things right, if you're looking for freedom, if you're looking for glory, does the next word make sense? How did the Christ come and deliver people? How did the Christ set captives free? How did the Christ initiate God's kingdom? He died. Died. Let me say it again. He died. Christ died. But wasn't He coming to restore the kingdom, to deliver God's people? Yes. And how did He do it? He died. Now, do you need a definition of died? I don't think so, but... To beat a dead horse. See what I did there? Thank you. Died means that life has ended. The Scripture says the body without the spirit is dead. Jesus, the Son of God, came as the Christ, the Anointed One, and He died. After living for 30 plus years, He died on a cross. He was killed. Seems counterproductive, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there. Next word. There's that word again, for. You're like, how important can the word for be? For. Not only did Christ die, but He died for, and we'll see it's someone or someones. We'll get to that in just a minute. But you need to see that the Christ died in place of someone else for the benefit of someone else. That's what for means. Christ died for, in behalf of, for the sake of someone. And who was it? 
He died for good people who tried real hard. He died for the Jews because they were His chosen people. He died for the ungodly. Now, we're not going to do the because it's actually not in the Greek text. The Greek word is one word for the ungodly. So in our word for word, we're going to take the ungodly as one word. <clears throat> Who did Christ die for? The ungodly. Now before we look at the implications of this, who are the ungodly? The word means, the word ungodly means, now listen, three weeks ago, the pre-Christmas message, we talked about the blessing of having peace with God. And what we did was we drew the contrast with peace and what? War. The ungodly man is at war with God. And God is at war with him. It's pretty bad. So who are the ungodly? The word ungodly means those who are destitute of reverential awe towards God. Those who condemn God. The impious. So these are not nice people. These are not people who are trying to help God or do God's will. They are those who condemn God. They are God's enemies. They are at war with God before being given peace with Him. This passage affirms that by calling those that Christ died for ungodly, it confirms the fact that they were His enemies. They were without God. They were against God. They were not seeking Him. They were condemning Him. They weren't at peace with Him. They were at war with Him. And that's who Christ died for. That's who the Anointed One came to deliver. That's who the Messiah came for. He came for the ungodly and He died in their place. Let that sink in for a second. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the connection between we and the ungodly. If you are a believer here this morning, you were the ungodly. Now you're we because of the middle there. Let's go to verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now we're not going to take this word for word. You're like, good. What's Paul conveying here? It's pretty straightforward, I think. How many people in here know someone who has actually died for someone? People with military experience, I'm sure, have seen people die for people. Maybe law enforcement. Maybe in a personal experience. Someone who has made the choice to die in place of someone else. Now it happens. A guy I went to school with was a Navy SEAL, and he was a part of the team that died in Afghanistan that Marcus Luttrell survived, the Lone Survivor movie. He was a part of that team. He died in that raid. He was not the Lone Survivor. He chose to lay his life down. And I'm not trying to get all patriotic, but God bless our military men who go over and fight in our place and who are willing to die for us. That's love. 
But it doesn't happen every day in my life. I don't see people dying for people every day. Oh, look, that guy died for that guy again. Oh, that's nice. Somebody else died for somebody. Look at that. I see it again. You don't see it much. And that's what Paul's trying to convey here. It probably happens every day, but the instances that we see are rare, right? Here, Paul says one would scarcely die for a righteous person, but then says maybe one would die for a good person. Who would you die for? Again, there's probably a handful of people that you say you would die for, but who would you literally step in front of a bullet for? Push out of the way of a car. It don't happen a lot. And that's, that's all Paul's trying to say here. It don't happen much. And if it is somebody, usually it's somebody that you care about. It's usually somebody that you think is a pretty good person that you have a high opinion of. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would die. We're not going to get into the difference between righteous and good here. I'm not that interested in that. It's, it's a study you can do. But all he's saying is it don't happen much. And usually if it's going to happen, it's going to be done for good people or a good person. And then verse 8. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My goodness gracious. Somebody might die for a good person. As rare as that even is. But God. This puts God in contrast to us and our normal, natural human tendencies. And what does God do that's not like us? Even, our, even in our most noble thoughts, He shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So God doesn't just feel a strong affection, but He actually shows His love. For who? For us. And that us here is those who are redeemed. Paul is saying that those who have been saved are us, and that group called us has been shown God's love in an amazing way, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Those who were called the ungodly in verse 6 are here referred to as sinners. And the word sinners means those devoted to sin, those who are preeminently sinful. Those who are especially wicked. The heathen. That's what the word sinners means. These ungodly sinners are weak. They're not righteous. They're not good. They are God's enemies and they are us. It is us who deserves death, hell, and the grave. It is us who are sinful, wicked, and heathen. And God, to show His love, sent His Son, the perfect, holy, blameless Lamb of God, to die for us. Who did what for who? God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We sang... Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt He pays and my death He dies that I might live while I was in my sin, while I was a sinner, while I was His enemy. God sacrificed His Son for me while I was His enemy. God paid the price for my sins 
when I was unable to do anything for Him. God, You came to me when I could not come to You. Could not. Weak, impotent, infirm, no strength. And God, You did it to show Your love for me. And you listen to me right now, church. You listen to me right now, saved man, saved woman. God, to show His love for you, sent the Christ to die for you while you were lost, while you were hopeless, while you were helpless, and while you were full of sin. He did not wait for you to get better or to do better. He knew that you were incapable of doing that. He knew we were weak and impotent. He knew that only He could do what needed to be done to bring us to Him. God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We should never, ever be able to get over that. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that we deserve it. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that we were good enough for Him to set His affections on us. But we weren't. We were punching Him in the face. We were spitting in His face. We were cursing Him to His face. And He sent Christ to die for me. That's how much God loves you, believer. Now there's a whole lot of implications that come out of this that we'll look at next week in the next passage. Especially verses 9 to 11 and then all throughout through the end of chapter 8. But I want to end our time today by seeing how what we've looked at today applies to our lives. No matter who you are, this is first application point, no matter who you are in this building this morning, no matter what your state is with God, believer, non-believer, saved, unsaved, and stick with me, don't, don't, don't shut the door on me when I say this too early. No matter who you are, if you are going to come to God, you have to come as a sinner. If you come on any other basis, what Jesus did is not for you. The first step of being justified is to see your need to be justified. It's basic 12-step stuff, right? First key to solving a problem is what? Realizing that you have one. You cannot approach God on any other basis than, I am a sinner. Now, if you're not a believer, that's how you have to approach God. Even as a believer, being justified by faith, we still approach God on the basis of the knowledge that in and of myself, I am a sinner. The story that Jesus told about the publican and the Pharisee, publicans and tax gatherer, 
And oh, the Jews hated tax gatherers. Anybody hate tax gatherers? <laughs> not IRS people. I'm not talking about <laughs> taxes. Um, so he brings up this story and he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. Pharisees were holy, righteous people in people's eyes. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, God, I praise you that I'm not like other people. I give my tithes down to the smallest of men. I praise you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then Jesus said that the tax collector was not even able to lift his eyes to heaven, but he sat with his head down beating his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said he went away justified as opposed to the person who exalted himself and said, I'm glad I'm not like other people. If you are going to approach God, you approach God on the basis of knowing that you, in and of yourself, are a sinner. No other way. There's no other access to Him. Paul. We think Paul's pretty holy, right? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul said. This guy's writing part of your Bible. And he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Listen. It's the truth I grapple with all the time. I went through a period of my life where people would say something like that to me and I would look them in the eye and I would say, I am not a sinner. I'm a saint. Scripture calls me a saint. I've been redeemed. I've been restored to right relationship with God. Don't you call me a sinner. Because I thought that negated Christ's work in me. I was wrong. I am a saint. Scripture does refer to me as a saint. Remember Simeon Peccator? I don't remember what it was. Simeon Eustace at Peccator. Everybody's like, what? That was a Latin phrase that Martin Luther said at the same time, saint and sinner. Okay? So I have to realize that yes, I am right. And one day God will bring me into perfect glory when I won't sin anymore. But right now, in this flesh, I'm still a sinner in right relationship with God because of what Christ did. I can say with Paul, I'm the foremost of sinners. But Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. So first point of application, approach God as a sinner, whether you're saved or unsaved. Second application point, are you ready? Listen. Christ died for sinners. If I could, I would do one of them CrossFit box jumps up here and stand and say, Christ died for sinners! Because it is the best news in the world. You say, well, I don't feel that. Pray. God, please show me the truth of this because I don't get it. And I'm not saying you have to feel it necessarily, but I tell you what, when you know it, you're going to feel it. You're saying, if I don't feel it, does that mean I don't know it? I'm saying there's room for growth there. Come to God as a sinner because Christ died for sinners. Check this out. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus Christ suffered and died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
Why? That He might bring us to God. That is reconciliation. God decisively acted to bring sinners to Himself when we could not come to Him. Christ died for sinners. You say, well, don't call me a sinner. Call me a sinner. Because I am. And Christ died for me. That's the good news. You can only come to God as a sinner. Christ died for sinners. Third point. Place your faith in the finished work of Christ, knowing that we are justified by faith in His work alone. Rest, sinner. Rest, redeemed person who is still a sinner. Repose yourself upon the grace of God and place your faith wholly in the work of Christ. Listen to what I'm trying to say to you. God is satisfied with the work of Christ. Christ died for sinners and God said, I accept that. So your access to God is granted to you by the work of Christ. So place your faith in Him in that finished work. That's the third point. Fourth and last point. Rejoice. Rejoice then for God is for you. God is with you. God is not against you anymore. We sang, and if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then who could stand against? Now that's out of Romans 8, and yes, I will refer to it as we close. Know that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. Know that He did die for you. And know that that love is everlasting. I'm going to read nine verses and we're going to be done. And I want you to hear how much God loves you and what that means in your life to cause you to rejoice in who He is and what He's done. Listen to it. You've heard them and heard them and heard them. Hear them again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's next week. We'll talk about that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Because listen, those things will come. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who did what? Loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, and I pray that you can say that this morning, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing. Nothing can separate you, believer, 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loved you so much, He died for you. What we'll see next week is He went on with that love and now He wants to live through us and keep us to the point that we will see Him face to face. He's not done loving us, but He did show His love for us in that He died for us. I would die for you, He said. Abide. Abide. I trust it. I receive it. And I pray that you would too. Let's pray. God, you are able to do what we can't do. Show us your love. Help us to understand it. Help us to see what Jesus did. May it change our lives. As believers, may we be just rock sure solid that your love for us will not change. May we see it displayed through the work of Christ. And may we be amazed again. For those who are sitting here this morning that don't know you, that haven't experienced that love even now, God, by the power of your Spirit, convict them of their sins, show them that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. And that that Savior is Jesus Christ who died for them to pay the penalty for the sins that they had committed against a holy God. And may they place their faith in Jesus. God, they're not going to understand all of that right now. But you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can make it clear. Pray that you would do that, God. Show us your love. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand for benediction and we'll be dismissed, we do eat afterward. If you can stay with us and eat, that would be fantastic. If you can't, come back when you can sometime, okay? I'm going to read that prayer in Ephesians again as a benediction. The word benediction means good words, saying a good word over you. Talking to you on behalf of God, requesting God to do what we can't do. I do not cease to give thanks to you, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and here's the benediction, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. And all the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.